Father, I don't think that we know the half of it. And I know that's just an idiom, but I'm certain that it's an understatement. When we think about even the things we just sang about, you being a waymaker, uh, there wouldn't be a way if you weren't the way. Because the situation that we all find ourselves in as a people, as a, as a race, as a nation, as creation, um, without you being the way, we would, in fact, be irrevocably lost. And yet we are not. We're not. And even, even in the areas and in the times that it seems that we're lost, that the crooked and, and wandering way that we walk, when we look at it, we look at it in each other and ourselves, we feel lost, but we're not. Because you have come and you have embraced us. And that is such a benign term, Lord, to explain what you did and what you have done and the embrace that we find ourselves in even today. And that's all of us. That's all of humanity throughout all of time. That's creation. That's time and space itself. We are in your embrace. And we are desperate to wake up to it, Lord. We are desperate to help one another. Rise and see that. We are desperate, Lord, to get the good news of that reality out there so that people can slowly, like a baby opening its eyes or clearing its vision, begin to see whose we are, who you are, and who we are. Lord, we are certainly in the birth pangs of revelation in our nation. We are at a place where those of us that perhaps thought we knew what our destiny was and and who we were are being shaken to the core. And we are reaching out in faith. We are reaching out with our words and with our heart, with our faith, with our declarations. These are all fantastic. But even, Lord, uh, with all of that and the best that we're doing, I think we're underestimating it because we are still finite and we are still trying to apprehend the infinite and the infinite is you and your goodness and your purposes and the giving of your son and so I pray with all my heart that you would help us take a step forward in, in understanding that understanding the magnitude of who we are who you are what's going on in the, in the world around us and that we would have light shine in the dark places. Any darkness in us, we open up to that, and we declare that over the darkness around us and around the world. Thank you. Thank you. Lead us into revelation about the bigness of Jesus tonight. Amen. Anyway, I was excited about reviewing what we've looked at in uh, um, John 13, 14, 15, 16. We're going to do that. I've got this up here. And Oh, thanks, Ryan. Is it trying to come back on? All right. Thanks. Yeah. 
So uh, we're going to do that, but, pardon me? That's right. Yeah, it's looking for another source. So uh, I was going to do that, but I also wanted to do something that I did last week, and that was try to answer a question from the week before. And if I remember correctly, it was the week before, Richard, or, or just last week, that you asked about the worlds. So I, I didn't think much of it. I mean, in the sense I felt like I gave the best answer I could give off the cuff, but I, I wanted to study it out a little bit. And I knew that, for the most part, the world was cosmos. And, um, and so I prepared the review slides and then the questions, that's where I thought it was going to be good. And I think it'll still be good today if we get to them. But then I said, okay, well, I'm going to answer, see if I can look up and get a little more insight into what Richard asked about. Um, what's all this stuff about the world? You know, you're in the world, you're not in the world, I'm in the world, I'm going from the world, I came into the world, all this kind of stuff. And I have to confess, I don't know, I know some of you have had this experience where uh, without being prepared for it, you are thrust into a place where you have encountered something or walked in on something or broken in on something. You've encountered something so profoundly holy uh, that it's, it's hard to describe and it's hard to function in. Sometimes it happens in prayer or prophecy. Or, uh, to me, it happened dialoguing with the Lord this morning and studying. So... Uh, like I say, everything was all ready to go. I don't want you guys to think I only do my preparation on Friday morning. But but uh, that left me free to just read through again, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. And uh, with, with Richard's question in mind about, Lord, what do you help us understand what this stuff about the world is. And so I, uh, I looked into David Bentley Hart's book, in, in our Bible translation, and he does a really good job of trying to stick to the to the, the meat of the Greek. And uh, one of the characteristics that people often say about his translation is that it's kind of weird and awkward to read sometimes because he translated like it was written in the Koine Greek. And uh, so anyway, Father, uh, I feel like I've touched something holy. I feel like you have it for us tonight. I ask in Jesus' name that regardless of what comes out of my mouth, what would go into the hearts of the people is what you want them to know about the cosmos and your union with your son. Amen. Okay. So we're going to do a little review, but I, I, I had to back up a little bit for review into chapter uh, 12. And I know we didn't go there, but this is toward the end of chapter 12, and it sets a context You'll hear some of what Jesus prayed in 17 and talked to the disciples about, but this is all the way back in 1244. Uh, but Jesus spoke aloud and said, Whoever has faith in me has faith not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees um, me sees him who has sent me. Okay, remember how he says, so if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and you know if you obey or whatever. So this union idea, and that's what we've been studying for those of you that are new tonight. If you haven't uh, got to watch the... Uh, Facebook or whatever. Um, this union thing is, is really a, a, a huge deal. We started with the simple question, why is it that you say eternal life is to know you, God, and Jesus whom you sent? And we started, just that simple question opened the door to the fact that 
the union between the Father and the Son is the essence of what Jesus is talking about, and it's the essence of redemption. So, contrasted against that redemption and against that beautiful union in their mind and your mind and all that kind of stuff is the cosmos, or the thing, Richard, you, you asked about the world. So here it says, and whoever sees me sees him who has sent me. So this whole redemptive idea and about dealing with the, every encounter we have with Jesus is an encounter with the Father and so on. Keep that in mind. And then Jesus explains himself why he came. I have come as a light into the cosmos so that everyone who has faith in me not, might not remain in darkness. Now, if your mind is like mine, immediately you run to like, the passage in Isaiah, that there's a great darkness, but a rise and shine, your light has come. I'm the light of the world. You're the light of the world. Uh, the, the, he's delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness, or the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of the Son of his love. And so this theme, I have come as a light into the cosmos, so that everyone who has faith in me might not remain in darkness, is obviously a monstrous theme in the scriptures in the revelation of who Jesus is. And not only is it a, a theme, it, it probably literally is the central revelation because the coming of Jesus is the centerpiece of the gospel. It's the centerpiece of the new covenant. It's the centerpiece of, of what everything is pointed to. And this is why he said he came. Okay, I have come as a light into the cosmos so that everyone who has faith. Now, a little bit later in, in chapter 12 still, it says, and if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, all right, now you would expect, as important as it is to obey God, if anyone hears my word and doesn't keep them, to have some kind of consequence, right? But look at what is important for Jesus to convey. And this is at 12, before he gets in 13. If you remember, chapter 12 is when he was in Bethany, and he was back with Lazarus for the first time after Lazarus' resurrection. People were flocking to him, and they were flocking to Lazarus. The Pharisees literally were plotting to kill Lazarus as well because of so many people that were coming. And then Jesus was out. People were gathering. The Greeks said, can we see Jesus? And he started. this is where he starts talking about, if I, the Son of Man, be lifted up, I will drag all men to myself. And, and uh, the Father spoke from heaven. And anyway, it was a big deal, right? So then they go into chapter 13, which we're going to be in a second. But if anyone hears my word and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I came not that I might judge the cosmos, but that I might save the cosmos. So whatever this thing is, Richard, the world that he's talking about, you're in it, you're out, it's bad, they're going to eat you, whatever, you know. Jesus came not to judge it, but to save it. <laughs> yeah, you can if you wish. It's a learning process. But that I might save the cosmos. Now, I know for many of us, most of our Christian experience, when we think of the word save, we think of, at the biggest scale, people, or the elect, or depending on where you're coming from, uh, or we, we think about saving individuals or being saved. Jesus is thinking about saving the cosmos. And so it's going to be important that we understand what the cosmos is. And that's where I turn to David Bentley Hart for some help. And you can get this out of lexicons and all this kind of stuff too. Um, I personally think it's unfortunate that, that uh, the word cosmos is translated so frequently in so many translations as the world. And the reason is, and, and we're going to get into this just a little bit, but the reason is because the world uh, carries a lot of interpretive baggage in our culture. For one, we have a, a concept of the world. 
you know, you go back a number of years, they didn't have a concept of the globe with other civilizations everywhere. Everything was kind of tight. I'm not saying at the time that Jesus was here, these guys were writing because there was the Roman Empire had spread out quite a bit in that area. But we have a concept of the world, and, and sometimes that concept of the world is seeing it from a satellite perspective. You know, uh, on one of the ascensions, Michael, I don't know if Michael's on here today, I'll see his thing. But uh, he, he has that globe thing that Zoom has on it behind him. So we can think of the world that way. We can think of the world like the, uh, uh, the World Bank. You know, that's an economic system that has fingers everywhere. We think of the world like social uh, cultures and the, the geography and the climate and all this kind of stuff. So I'm going to appeal to David Bentley Hart. If you don't know who David, how many do not know who David Bentley Hart is? Okay, David Bentley Hart is a, uh, a theologian and an Anglican uh, or an, uh, an Eastern Orthodox theologian. Uh, he is very uh, aggressive in his theology and in his debating technique. He wrote a magnificent book uh, about the tsunami, Nancy, um, called Into the Sea or something like that. It's fantastic. Anyway, he's uh, he's a really interesting guy. If you ever get to listen to him, he'll use a lot of big words, and uh, then you'll go, man, that guy's really smart. All right, next comes uh, Cosmos. Cosmos. So this is a postscript in the translation of the New Testament that he did, and he, instead of just doing millions of footnotes, did a whole thing in the back on different words that he translated and why. So next comes Cosmos. I'm just going to read. This takes three and a half minutes. I timed it. Uh, which I have, for the most part, chosen not to translate in the traditional way as world, but simply to transliterate it as the word cosmos. The effect is often perhaps a bit jarring, but while there are instances in the text where the word functions as an equivalent to oiko uman, yes, oiko uman, which is the inhabited world of human beings. That's what that Greek word means. So when we think about the world as a society or a culture, that uh, the word is oikomun, not cosmos. But while it functions sometimes like that in the inhabited world of human beings, it more frequently means the whole of the created order. The heavens no less than the earth. Now you got to listen to this because this is, this is enormous if we get into trying to understand where it's going. So uh, it more frequently means the whole of the created order, the heavens, no less than the earth. It certainly carries this latter meaning in some of the critical and occasionally unsettling ways in many of the verses in John's Gospel, Paul's letters, and elsewhere. It is good, for example, to be reminded that in the New Testament and in Paul's theology in particular, both slavery to death and sin and final liberation from death in divine glory are described as cosmic, not merely human realities. Okay, let me read that one more time. Um, both slavery to death in sin and final liberation from death in divine glory are described as cosmic, not merely human reality. So you can begin to see that the word speaks of something bigger than just the things that affect human beings. Um, they take in the whole of creation. Moreover, the word world, as we use it today, simply does not capture what is the most essential to the ancient concept of cosmos, a word that most literally means order or arrangement or even loveliness of design. For us, the world is either merely the physical reality of nature and society out there, or it is the human sphere with all its attendant moral and historical contingencies. For the late antique cultures from which the New Testament came, the cosmos was 
quite literally a magnificently and terribly elaborate order of reality that comprehended nature, understood as the rational integrity organized by metaphysical principles. There's some big words. The essential principles of the natural and the animal human condition, the flesh and soul, for instance, with all their miseries, the spiritual world, including the hierarchies of the divine, the angelic, and the demonic, the astral and planetary heavens, understood as a changeless realm, at once physical and spiritual, as well as social, political, and the religious structure of authority and power, including the governments of human beings, of angels, of celestial demons, gods, terrestrial demons, and whatever other mysterious forces might be hiding behind nature's visible forms. It is a vision of the whole of the things that is utterly unlike any with which most of us are today familiar. And that simply does not correspond to any meaning of world intuitively obvious to us. For the author of 1 Peter or 1 John, for instance, to tell his readers to have nothing to do with the cosmos is to say something far more comprehensive, imponderable, and astonishing than they could, and, and then they should avoid vice or material longings, or that they should withdraw from society. So it seemed better to me to risk the oddity of the expression than to risk losing sight of these truths. So, uh, okay. So, so all I want to do, all I want to do is it, that probably deserves to be read two, three more times. All I want to do is I want to sum up that this word cosmos does not mean a, a small thing. It doesn't mean a single aspect of human human culture. It doesn't mean a single aspect of creation. It it literally means the divine design and order that manifests in all of the ways it manifests. So it's literally everything, including, and this is where it's got to stretch your brain a little bit, because the problem with the way we look at the world using the, the framework of the world is we see the world so quickly and so easily in a dualistic way where there's the world and then there's something else more desirable. Or people that love the world, see the world is desirable, and they ignore the other things that are, that are more important, like moral things or spiritual things or something like that. That is not what is being written about here. That is not what Jesus came, what does it say? That I, uh, I, I came not to judge the cosmos, but to save it. So we, if we're going to understand it, this is what hit me like a ton of bricks this morning. I go, oh my God, Lord. This is everything. The cosmos is everything except one thing. And if you're in the cosmos, or you're coming into the cosmos, you're coming into everything. You're coming into creation, which is frustrated. You're coming into the glory of men. You're coming into the depravity of men and mankind. You're coming into the laws of nature. You're coming into the machinations of time. That's the cosmos. Okay? And all of reality equals the cosmos plus one thing. <laughs> and we'll get to that, hopefully. All right. Yeah. So what I want you to... Th anything you can think about, just about, with one exception. Anything you can think about, with one exception, 
time, space, material things, culture, humans, uh, the accumulation of talent, uh, the expression of creativity, glory, all, everything, just about anything you can think of is best to be thought of contained in this concept of the cosmos. Yes, Nancy. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to take time away from this is just a thought. Sure. I spend a whole lot of time in the cosmos. Okay. <laughs> read this um, out of the passion sure. because I'll make a comment about it and then we'll go to the next verse. I just wanted to do it while we were right here. Yeah, go ahead. So it says, to believe in me is also to believe in God who sent me. For when you look at me, you are seeing the one who sent me. I have come as a light to shine in this dark, dark world so that all who trust in me will no longer wander in darkness. If you hear my words and refuse to follow them, I do not judge you. For I have not come to judge you, but to save you. So if you look at it according to the direct Greek mm -hmm. translation, I have not come that I might judge the cosmos, that I might save the cosmos. I think it was really interesting that in the Passion, instead of the cosmos, it says, I've not come to judge you. Mm -hmm but I've come to save you, yeah. okay? So the comment that I want to make, and this is just a thought mm -hmm. that maybe we can discuss later sure. at deeper length, is this. If, every, if everything that was created was created for him, by him, through him, and lives in him, mm -hmm. okay? And we really believe that everything in the cosmos lives in him, because all things that were created live in him. Mm -hmm. Then, if he lives in us, mm -hmm. what that likewise means is everything that was ever created in the cosmos lives in us, mm -hmm. because it all lives in him, and he is in us. What that does is it increases our level of governmental authority over things that happen in the cosmos. So right now, there are things happening in the cosmos that blow my mind. Mm -hmm. And it's because the Lord is just now opening up our level of understanding that all things that have ever been created live in him. And because he lives in us, they also live in us. Mm -hmm. So when it discusses the expansion of the kingdom, uh, which is continuously ongoing, it says, the kingdom shall be upon his shoulders but his head is different than his shoulders. Mm -hmm. If we are his body and he lives in us and all of that lives in us, and he is the head who gives the command, it's the shoulders that bear the government. Okay, right, sure. So, yeah. That's, I good, that's good thought. That's good thought. No, that's very much in line with what I think we'll get to. Uh, and, and as a matter of fact, I, one of the thoughts I had before was that I don't, want tonight to try to, I don't know how, to try to apply the concept of the kingdom, because I'm going to make a very sort of exclusive case for the relationship to cosmos and one other thing, but I, I do not disagree with that, and I think that's 
what's being opened up if we'll understand it. So you would agree, I'm sure, Nancy, that, that then a small view of this, the world or just one culture or just people we don't like or something like that is totally not the way, not what Jesus was talking about and living about. So yeah, okay, let's see what's next. So what is it? I read that. The cosmos is big. So now we're going to review with the cosmos in mind some of what we looked at in the last three weeks. So I, this little edit there in the middle, I just pulled out, I, I put in what uh, David Bentley Hart translated it into the New American Standard. That's what that means. So now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he would uh, pass from this cosmos to the Father. All right? I just want you to remember that phrase. Jesus is going to pass from the cosmos to the Father. So where is Jesus coming from and passing out from? The cosmos, right? The cosmos, what's the cosmos? Cosmos is everything. It's every, all the created order of things. It's the bigness. It's humanity. It's all this stuff. And where is he going? He's going to the Father. One thing. So where is Jesus going? To the Father. All right. Uh, he loved them. Uh, oh, and having loved his own in the cosmos. Now, this is interesting because I went back and checked the Greek. I usually like the way New American Standard tries to wrestle through stuff, but it inserts some stuff in here. Who were in the cosmos is a, is a, is a I could understand it, but it's a stretch of the, the jerky language that is in the gospel. The jerky language is represented very specifically by what he says, having loved his own in the cosmos. He wasn't placing us in the cosmos in that line. It says that in the cosmos, he loved us. He was leaving the cosmos, but before, when he was in the cosmos, he loved us. So it's not a positional statement leaving the disciples in the cosmos or putting them in the cosmos. It's saying that having loved his own in the cosmos, he loved them to the end. Do you see what I'm saying? It's, it, so, so in other words, if you read it the way a lot of the translations do, it's, the emphasis is that Jesus is going away and leaving. Now, there's other verses that talk about that, but that's not what this says. What this says is that while I was in the cosmos, I loved you guys in the cosmos. Yes, Ronnie? You may cover this soon, but that sounds like the cosmos is outside of God. Uh, I am going to cover it soon. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no, that's good. That just shows that Ronnie's tracking already. Truly, truly. Okay, so this was one of the other reviews. Basically, truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever sinned, I sinned, receives me. And he who receives me, receives him who sent me. All right, I want you to read this backwards. Okay, this is part of the review, because this is what we're talking about. He who receives me, receives him who sent me. Who is me in that verse? Jesus. Who is the one who sent him? Father or God. So who is the person being, or the people being referred to as he who receives whomever I send? That's back to your point, Nancy. That's us. As the Father has sent me, so send I you, Jesus says after the resurrection. Just believe it. That's all I'm asking you to do right now. Just in context of all this stuff, believe it. All right, so where was Jesus sent? He was sent into the cosmos. Not to judge the cosmos, but so that he could save the cosmos. And where does he send us 
It's in the cosmos. Okay? All right. So this is now chapter 14. Beginning of the chapter. Uh, in my Father's house, there are many places of rest. Would I otherwise have told you that I am going to make a place ready for you? And if I go and make a place ready for you, I am coming again and will take you along with me so that where I am, you might be also. All right. Where did Jesus go? He went to the Father. The Father's house. But he, he said, I'm going to the Father, you know. All right. So if he's coming again, he's coming to the cosmos again where we still are, right? And he is, is uh, he's going to take us along with him so that where I am, you might be also. So without overstretching this, Jesus went to the Father, and he's coming, and we're going to go with him to the Father. Okay? So that's, that's all we can get out of that one right now. All right, John 40, 60. I shall entreat the Father, and he will give you another advocate. Now, this was where we, in the last few uh, weeks, looked at this amazing union between the Father and the Son in the Holy Spirit as the essence of eternal life. And that's, again, remember, the question we started with was, what is eternal life, and why does it involve knowing both you, Father, and Jesus whom you sent? Jesus whom you sent. Okay, so this is part of it. And now the Holy Spirit comes in here, Trying again to answer Ronnie's question, where's the Spirit? That he may be with you through the ages, another advocate, that he may be with you through the ages. The reason I like the way Hart does this is he links the coming of the Holy Spirit to being with us forever. If we were to examine the activity of God during the marriage feast of the Lamb, we would find the advocate with the bride, with the people. We would find the Father being the Father, as depicted in the various parables about the wedding feast, and we would find Jesus being the groom. But God the Holy Spirit would be there with the people, and that's why you don't see or read a lot about the Holy Spirit in a lot of these situations, because the Holy Spirit is with and in. Okay, that he may be with you through the ages. The Spirit of truth. Now, back to the cosmos, which the cosmos cannot receive. Because it neither sees or knows it. Now, don't be too bummed out that he used it as a pronoun for the Holy Spirit. He's just being literal. It is, it is a, a neuter thing. Okay? He believes in the Spirit being God. The Spirit of truth, which the cosmos cannot receive because it neither sees or knows it. So that gives us a clue about the cosmos. The cosmos relates to itself through the senses of seeing and knowing, understanding, rationale, all that kind of stuff. That's why you can see the cosmos with a telescope, but you can have a really big telescope and you can't see the Holy Spirit because it relates to a different way. Okay, make sense? I'm not trying to go into depth here. We're just going to get to the main point. All right, John chapter 14. Just a little while in the cosmos. Now, back to your question, Richard. Do you see how the consistency of this idea of the cosmos being everything begins to simplify the what's the world question? Or what's the cosmos question? That's all I'm, I'm, yeah, just kind of keep that in mind. Just a little while, and the cosmos no longer sees me. But you see me. Because I live, you too will live. And on that day, you will know, and then, Tim, you know what that goes. On that day, you'll know that I'm in my Father. You're in me, and I'm in you. And I just saved space on the screen because I didn't write it because we all knew it. 
But, so think about what the cosmos is that isn't seeing, no longer seeing Jesus. The Pharisees, the Romans. Imagine the confusion that that culture had when Jesus was alive but gone. How about the uh, ruling principalities and powers that for years had subdivided the earth by permission of Yahweh, somehow, I have no idea why he allowed that to happen, but they subdivided the earth and they dominated these various cultures, manifesting their peculiar natures over this culture, that culture, this culture, that culture, while God seemed to withdraw and, and uh, establish his, his relationship and the culture he desired with Israel. Now, all of a sudden, things have changed a little bit because they don't see Jesus anymore. They don't know what's going on. But on that day, you will know. That puts us in a position to transcend the cosmos in our vision. And that's where it starts getting, like, no matter how you try, you can't say it big enough. No matter how you try to believe it. Okay? How about this one? Peace I leave to you. My peace I give to you. I give to you not as the cosmos gives. So the cosmos has the capability of giving you stuff like peace. Right? But Jesus doesn't give that. And he says, don't let your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And then it goes on to say, for I'm going to the Father. What this don't let your, your heart be troubled about is he said, you know, I'm going to the Father. And, and you're all grieving over that. But the reality is you shouldn't let your heart be troubled because the Father's bigger than me, better than me. And I'm going to him. So you should rejoice. So where's he going? To the Father. Verse 31. But so that the cosmos may know. I, this is like my favorite verse that I've used heart for out of this stuff. But so the cosmos may, may know that I love the Father. And that just as the Father has commanded me, so I do. Arise and let's go from here. All right, let me see if I can tell you why I'm kind of juiced up about this one. Of all the things that you think the cosmos might ought to know, with all the darkness there is in the world, if you think of all the, the frustration that creation is subject to, and it's waiting for the revelation of the glory of the sons of God, and you asked a question about glory two weeks ago in I really didn't have a good answer for that. This is at least a part of that answer. You think about all the cultures of men where injustice reigns, where confusion reigns, where abuse reigns. You think about all of the, the cures, for instance, that are all over the world, in the canopy, in, in the, the rainforest, in plants in the desert, and minerals that are in the water. All these things are just waiting there, and only a tiny fraction of them have ever been mined or harvested or understood. And so because of that lack of knowledge about these things that God has sown into creation from the beginning, people are dying, people are suffering. All these things the cosmos could know. But you know what's the most important thing in all the world and in all the cosmos? It's to know that Jesus loves his Father. Now, I want you to think about that just for a second. That is the singular most important revelation to the cosmos. That Jesus loves his Father. 
Now, think about a natural expression of that that is so true in this world, and a lot of people are trying to deny it, and again, because the cosmos is kind of screwed up. How big a difference does it make in a child's life if dad loves mom and mom loves dad? There's nothing more important, not really socially. I mean, you can take a, a family that has all kinds of resources, all kinds of wealth, all kinds of opportunity, and if dad and mom don't love one another, those kids are not functionally better off in the long run than a, than a family that lives in third world poverty where they adore one another. There's just something incredibly powerful. And that's just a reflection in the cosmos of this reality that is beyond the cosmos. So that, to me, is just an extraordinary revelation. So that the cosmos may know that I love the Father. Okay? John chapter 15. These things I commanded, so that was 14's review. These things I commanded you so that you love one another. If the cosmos hates you, you know that it hated me before you. If you were of the cosmos, the cosmos would have loved its own. But since you are not of the cosmos, the cosmos therefore hated you. For some reason, as confusing as this still is, it seems simpler, thinking of it this way, with that definition of cosmos than the world. Because I was struggling with you, Richard, when, when I was thinking about it, using the term world, well, did that mean the religious world? Did that mean the social world? Did that mean the financial world? Did that mean the natural world? No, it means everything. It means everything. Because all of a sudden, as I think about and interpret all these words with the cosmos meaning everything, now I'm starting to feel the weight of the broken cosmos, the weight of the fallen cosmos. And this is where I start getting in trouble because is all the cosmos fallen? You know, you'd think there'd be some places in heaven or something like this that are not, not messed up yet or whatever. But the more I think about it, the more I think that it is more accurate and is more revelatory and is more healthy to think about the cosmos as being under the influence of the things which we associate with the fall or with brokenness or with lostness. Things which otherwise might ought to be judged, but Jesus has determined being sent from the Father to save. So does that mean that Jesus is going to save the flora and fauna? Yeah. All creation. Does it mean that Jesus is going to save heaven? Bikers? Yeah. He'll save bikers. He'll save bikes. Oh, spiders. I don't like spiders and snakes, but I think he does, and he will. All right, so I don't, I don't really want an answer, and I hope no one comes to the mic over this, but how often do you think that God, that Jesus, has been sent not to judge, but to save heaven? As soon as I thought about that, that delivered me from the temptation to think that Heaven was different than the world. Now, I know heaven's different than the world in some ways, and especially with us being able to like, do ascensions now and go to heaven and heaven on earth and all this kind of stuff. But there is a truth here that is bigger than the dualism which would lead us to think if we could just get to heaven, wow, everything's going to be okay. No, heaven's part of the cosmos, and Jesus came not to judge it but to save it. And quite honestly, that explains a lot if you start thinking those terms. That's why Satan can walk around during Job's days 
looking around and then cause a bunch of trouble right under God's nose. And I don't know how to describe that. Or how about it? How about all these, these uh, heavenly councils scattered out, uh, you know, inflicting their ways on cultures and, and, and nations? But Jesus came to, to save and save. Okay, see, this expands. I didn't come to judge it. I came to save it. So salvation isn't just about getting somebody to confess their sins. That might be important to do at some point in time. Salvation is that bigger concept. It's that uh, saved, restored, delivered, kept, made whole. Is heaven not made whole already? Yeah. Apparently not. Yeah, yeah. What about that? What about uh, being able to sweep out of the sky stars with his tail? He's even in here in just a minute. That fellow we just talked about. These things I command you that you love one another. If the cosmos hates you, you know that it hated me before you. If you were the cosmos, the cosmos would have loved its own. Since you're not of the cosmos, the cosmos therefore hates you. Something, Richard, has transformed these men he's speaking to and given them reference points outside the cosmos. And that's why the cosmos hates them. Now, if we think that the cosmos is, is this culture, that culture, this religion, that religion, this science, that science, we're going to be confused the rest of our life. But if we surrender to the idea that the cosmos means the whole order of everything, except one thing, then we're going to see, oh, you're talking about something special here. Okay? And when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will prove the cosmos wrong. (laughs) He'll prove the cosmos wrong. The Holy Spirit's not out there just trying to convict the financial world that it's wrong. Or the scientific world. Or the religious world. Or the social world. He will prove the cosmos wrong concerning sin and concerning righteousness and concerning judgment. Why? Concerning sin because they don't have faith in me, Jesus says. If everything is suffering and needing not, not to probably in a position to be judged, but not being judged, but being saved by Jesus, that's what this is talking about. And one of the reasons is because they don't believe in, they don't have put faith in Jesus. We're not. They're not. The cosmos is not. Okay. Next one. Concerning sin because they don't have faith in me. Concerning righteousness because I am going to the Father and you no longer see me. Where's Jesus going? Okay. And concerning judgment, because the archon of this cosmos has been judged. The prince is what that word means. Of this cosmos. Okay, now, think about this. And if that, let's say that that prince that we're talking about is the one in the scripture called the Satan, the accuser. Okay. We have all kinds of trouble with our theology, especially as charismatics and spiritual warfare and all that kind of stuff, by assigning to that being, spoken about here, spoken later in the chapter, spoken in Revelation as falling and so on. We have trouble because it forces us to then try to divvy up the nature of the warfare and the nature of the conflict and pit one thing in the cosmos against another thing in the cosmos. And I'm not saying the cosmos isn't capable of battling it out with itself, because it is. Wars, rumors of wars, uh, tempest, 
disasters, destruction, all these things are cosmos. But he, it, is not really the issue. It's the brokenness of the cosmos, and it's the usurping of that brokenness that has been taken on by, by this one. And we don't understand that the prince of the cosmos has already been cast down and judged. Okay, Ronnie. There's a scripture that says the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever. Yeah. You think that might be... Yeah, yeah, that's the it. God that's of the that's, cosmos? I think so, absolutely. I think, absolutely. And I think that act explains a lot of what goes on in the cosmos. So we might explore what an unbeliever is based on that. And we might explore what blindness is. What is it we don't see? We probably don't see the value of one another. We don't see the truth of science. We don't see the truth of faith. We don't see the truth of the supernatural, all this kind of stuff. Uh, but yes, that'll have to be for another night. Okay, now here's an interesting one. And I don't even, I, I, this just is interesting because I'm a Greek nerd. For the Father, the word is pater, himself loves you because you have cherished me. And here's what the disciples did. You had faith that I come forth from God. And I go, from God? And this guy's a pretty uh, straightforward translator. So I said, from God? And I dug up the Greek, and for sure, it says Theo, not Potter, or not any of the, the father words. So it literally was written here, for the Father himself loves you because you have cherished me and had faith that I come forth from God. Now Jesus, speaking of himself, says, I came forth from the Father, Patros, and have come into the cosmos. So in the act of coming from someplace into the cosmos, Jesus was sent by the Father. But what the guys believed that liberated them is that he came from Theos, God. That'll play in just a second. I came forth from the Father and have come into the cosmos. I am leaving the cosmos again and am going to the Father. All right. I don't have time to teach on this, but I got all excited about it. Because what it meant to me is that the distinction between the Father and the Son allows us to see God's plan. And I choose the words very carefully. The distinction and the roles of the Father and the Son in this sending and coming and honoring and loving allows us to see God, Jehovah Elohim, at work. And so this coming and going and being sent by the Father in the Spirit, we get to believe that Jesus, that God, is redeeming the cosmos. God is redeeming the cosmos. Now, if God is redeeming the cosmos, I, I can't go too deep into this right now, but that should make us question how small an outcome in that redemptive plan that God is willing to accept. All or nothing. Yeah, kinda. So so we're not we're not just talking about Jesus being given an assignment to overcome a mess that Adam made. Because that could be fairly local in its but if you're thinking in terms of coming to save the cosmos and coming from God as God, sent by the Father as the Word made flesh, then you have to stick the scope out bigger. 
you have to at least entertain the possibility that the intention of God in Christ is to save the cosmos. Now, that's a heady thought because it challenges narrow local salvation objectives, local redemptive objectives. But I will warn you that the Bible expressly says exactly that. And I'll show you that in just a moment. Richard? So, um, so with the thing with Adam and Eve, mm-hmm. did it, was it, are we looking at that as local, or did what they did was more cosmetic, or was more Co- cosmo? Uh, cosmic? Cosmic. Um, well, first of all, they weren't the only players, cosmo. when you think about it. And this is an answer totally off the top of my head and my heart. They weren't the only players. There was a snaky thing there. There were, uh, let us, there were angels there ready already to guard things, to do things, to send them out. I think what we're looking at is a cosmic event, a cosmos event. That creation w- was a cosmos event. In other words, what was created? What does the scripture say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's all there is that was created. It eventually got, I mean, it was populated. It had angels in it, it had animals in it, it has microbiology stuff in it, and bugs and things. I don't fully understand all that stuff. Mankind is in the center of that, but they're in the center of the cosmos. And the cosmos has chaos in some parts of it that need development, and it has gifts and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, all I'm saying, I'm not saying that thinking of the, co- of the world as the cosmos in the proper context is going to eliminate all confusion, but it does make it more interesting confusion. <laughs> all right, so, so what I'm saying about this, though, is there's an interesting play of words there that I think is significant, that Jesus says, I came from the Father, and you can believe now that, that I came from God that I came from God. And then remember what Jesus said he came for, not to judge the cosmos, but to save it. All right, so he's leaving the cosmos again, and he's going back to the Father. Uh, now John chapter 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him. Okay. To continue the thought from the last verse, if we're to be honest, we have to consider what all means about authority and what all means about being given. We don't have to come to a conclusion about it yet. We don't have to explain how, if we come to a conclusion, all means all, but that's what it says. All right, um, all you've given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, Now, who's he talking about, though? He's talking about the Father, right? That they may know you, Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. All right, just keep that in the back of your mind. I have manifest your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me. I I don't see Greg tonight, but that verse struck him last time. Okay, go ahead. The prior screen, you had the difference between Father and Theos, or Petro. Uh Uh-huh. Do we know that the only true God is the, yeah, it's the Father one, not the Theos? Oh, so it's the That's Theos. That's Theos, yeah. But you said what Father. I, no, what I'm saying is that Jesus is praying to the Father right there. Father. Right. Father. The so only true God. I'm starting to God. develop a different version of the Trinity during all this right now. Yeah. 
No, huh? I don't know. Oh, I am. Oh, yeah, I oh, gotcha. Okay, I gotcha. I gotcha. I thought you said I did. Not on purpose, but it's getting excited. But yeah, so Jesus was speaking to the Father, which is why I say, Father, uh, the only true God. You, the only true God. So the you he was referring to was the Father, but the only true God was God and Jesus Christ. So anyway, we'll get to that. It's confusing, I know. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. All right, John, uh, further on in 17. This is one of the world clear-ups. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. All right, so we're going to talk about the cosmos. And this is, this is part of Jesus coming to save the cosmos, is that, that those of us that believe on the word of the apostles, the disciples, we may be one, and here's the standard of our oneness. This is Jesus asking the Father and certainly expecting this to be a reality. That they may be one as we are one, Father. You and me. That they may all be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Do you hear that reflected back in John fourteen twenty? Father, in that day you'll know that I'm in the Father and you're in me and I'm in you. Father, this is what I'm praying now, that they may all be one. In other words, we could mystify that relationship and say, okay, I'm in Jesus, he's in me, we're in the Father. And I'm not, that is what you were talking about, Nancy, that reality is what you were talking about earlier. And I'm not, so when I say mystify it, I'm not, I'm not saying demean it or anything. What I'm saying is we can push it into an, a spiritual realm that doesn't have any impact on our lives. But you can't do that with this. Because Jesus is continuing that thought, that revelation. He knows what the purpose of God is because he is the purpose of God. He is the Father sent one. He knows. And it is that we be one as they are one. That's why a bigger view of cosmos, Richard, is helpful to keep our faith hungry for the bigger reality, rather than just maybe latching onto this form of the world or that form of the world and feeling like we've cut some great thing by aligning ourselves with that. What's being asked and expected here is extraordinary. It's huge. It's all-encompassing. And it's worth living and dying for if we could ever get it in our hearts. Ronnie. Mm -hmm. Hopefully this is helpful in that. Harmful. Okay, it'll give me a chance to take a drink. Okay, yeah. What I'm getting from this right now which seems to be pivotal in a way that I don't quite grasp because I just am seeing it now. Yeah. yeah. Is that it's like there's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, which I've always understood to be God. Mm -hmm. That's my understanding as well. And I threw in the name Trinity just because it was a nice name. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's also God which seems to be different than the Father. Uh, but it's the same. It's different and the same. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like there's the three parts, but then you also were there is the by one. the one. The, or the three parts are the one. That's what yeah. I'm thinking. That's a simplistic way for me to think about it now. The three parts are the one. Because the theos is different than the patros. Yeah, yeah. And it's different than the huios, which is son. Yeah. Yeah. Or the, or the, you know what, yes, Vicky. Yeah, you guys just yell if you have one. We got the sound up. Zoomers. Zoomers. 
That's, we're talking to you. Just yell if you got a question. All right, let me, I'm almost done here, though, because we're, we're, we're about at the end of the thing. Uh, I mean, at the end of the review. <laughs> now, okay, understand this. If we think about this wrong, the cosmos will be cast as a bad guy because it's broken. It has all kinds of cruddy stuff in it. But the whole reason for the plan of God sent by the Father in Jesus, then sent by Jesus and the Father in the, in the person of the Spirit, then sent by the Spirit in the person of you and me. The whole reason is so that the cosmos can believe that you sent me. So the cosmos now needs to know two things. It needs to know that Jesus loves the heck out of his Father. And it needs to know that the Father loved the cosmos enough to send the Son. Yes, Ronnie. Restoration of all things. Yeah, you, you have to consider that this speaks to that. You have to consider that this is in the... And first, don't start with the outcome and try to figure out how it's going to happen. Start with the heart of God. Has God taken actions to redeem the cosmos? Yes. If we'll think about it as the cosmos... And then questions that you get ridiculed for bringing up in polite evangelical company, you can get back and say, don't be stupid. Of course it's included in that. That's what cosmos means. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like when somebody says, you think a fallen angel will be redeemed? Well, I don't know how to explain that. And I'm not trying to make a doctrine of it. But what I'm saying is, in some ways, how can they not? How can they not? Because what would be the success of this program that God conceived of and sent his son and the son said, yes, I'm coming and the spirit is here. How could it not? We have to think about that. And then if you can begin to think about that, then your, your irritating Uncle Joe has a lot more chance of fitting into your theology of redemption than he did before. You have an Uncle Joe. I'm sorry. That was not... <laughs> I wasn't thinking of Uncle Joe. Okay. All right. In your name I have made known to them and will make known to them. All right. So what I emphasized last week before thinking about the cosmos in this way is that Jesus... And this is not an original thought. Baxter Kruger said this and it attached to me. Jesus has taken responsibility to make God's name, the Father's name, known to the disciples. And he is saying he's, he's going to make it known to us. In other words, he's taking that responsibility. This isn't, it's not just for us to try to, to puzzle out. Jesus died and rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father and lives in us and is sending the Holy, sent the Holy Spirit and is sending you and I so that the name can be made known to us and then he goes to say, and I in them. That's where your point started. And it's inescapable. We cannot get away from that. So anything that Jesus is, is in us. Anything that Jesus controls is in us. Anything that Jesus can do is in us. And we have to deal with it. And just because we don't recognize it and we're not used to it, isn't an excuse to call him a liar. Say, I believe you, but help my unbelief. But let's at least wrestle with it. All right? So, 
This is our review from before. Jesus was and is radically loved by his Father because they're one. That's easy to remember. Second, the Father has sent Jesus to us, and Jesus came to reveal one love for us, God's love. And I made the point last week that God doesn't have different loves for different people. There's no need for him to have it. There's nothing in the Scripture that says he has one love for this and one love for that. He just has a love. He loves. He is love. Okay? It's part of being his essence. Every encounter with Jesus is an encounter with our Father because they're one. Father's love for us is entangled with his love for Jesus. Now, this is important to remember. God loves us because he loves Jesus, and he loves us with the love he loves Jesus with. And the scripture even says here, uh, earlier in John, it says that because you have cherished me, because you have loved me, Father loves you. I used to think, well, that's a ripoff. It's conditional. I mean, if I don't love Jesus, you don't love me. I don't think about it that way anymore because that, that's like a stupid idiot's way to think. That's thinking only from my perspective. From your perspective, you go, look, he's loving my son. I love you, Jason. <laughs> I love you, Diane, because you, you cherish my son. A father ought to have the right to do that. That makes him understandable. That means his love's not some cold thing. Like a, you know, like I used to hear when I was a Baptist. Like, well, God loves you, but he doesn't like you. I think he likes me. I think he likes you. It's okay for him to like us. Because we love his son. Now, what if we don't love his son? Well, there's a lot of stuff going on here to suck the cosmos into the place where, you know, it's kind of like Dan Muller says, if you knew me the way Jesus knows me, you'd love me like he does. And if you knew Jesus the way the Father does, you'd love the Father the way Jesus does. Here's the, the big one. Now, I couldn't shorten this. I tried. Jesus' union with his Father is the source of and the other to the cosmos. So, let me explain briefly. If we understand, and it, it is an accurate use of the word, that the cosmos is every created thing in all those orders, there's only one other thing. And that is the union between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that is God. All right, I'll say it again. If the cosmos is everything, every created thing, every created thing, then the only thing outside the cosmos is the one uncreated thing. And the one uncreated thing is God, but that's too vague a term. Not that it's bad, but it's too vague a term to interact with. You can only worship God from afar or put a statue up in the middle of Corinth that says, to the unknown God. But Jesus has shown us more of that. He showed us who Yahweh was as opposed to all the other Elohim that were out there. He showed us who the Spirit was. He showed us what the Father thinks and how He acts. He came from God. That's what we believe. But He revealed the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And I don't fully know. I don't, Ronnie. I don't know exactly that. But I know this. I know, like, uh, the Lord's been working with me on, on this propensity I have to over-split him up and think only in terms of, of the persons of the Trinity. So I've been going back and forth with him. 
And this last week, and I, I think you guys will like this, this last week, he talked to me about uh, what we studied a long time ago, if you were here in Joyland a long time ago, when we went to Genesis, and we, we got to the place where we did the first part of the creation story in Genesis 1, and it was Elohim did this, and Elohim did this. But in the second part, Jehovah Elohim did this. Jehovah, or Yahweh, Elohim did this. And, and uh, I remember studying, and remember I called that rabbi guy, and I asked him, and he said, well, that, that's the, like the national name of God. That's the name of God. And I go, well, who's God with the name? That, that would be Yeshua, or Jesus. And so, for better or worse, this is where I'm at on the Trinity right now, is that Jesus' union with the Father helps us understand the nature of the God from whom this redemptive plan came. And it's the plan that's been foreshadowed from everything from the flood forward. Abraham, uh, Israel, the Mosaic, all that stuff. But he's the other to the concept. Their union. So when when, when we're being drawn into something out of the cosmos, there's only one place to be drawn. It's into the union between the Father and the Son in the Spirit. That's where we transcend the cosmos. And that's where then we can be sent back to the cosmos. Because we are in the union between the Father and the Son in the Spirit. We are in Jehovah Elohim. He's not distant like Elohim would be by himself. He is, he's, okay. Um, the knowledge and the experience of the glory of that union. So this is just a quick uh, catch up on the glory, Richard. Jesus said, Father, uh, Grant me the glory that I had with you. The glory of Jehovah Elohim is the love dynamic between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That's the glory. That's what shines about God, is the love between the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father, I think. So the knowledge and the experience of the glory of that, that union through faith in Jesus, is the redemption of the cosmos. It is eternal life. And it is what Jesus has dragged us into, according to John 12. If I am lifted up, I will drag all men to me. And that is why he is saying it. And it only sounds religious and mysterious because we won't accept the plain language of it. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. And he goes, just, just before that, he said, I'll ask the Father, and he's going to send you a helper. And he's going to be with you and in you forever. And then Jesus says this cute little phrase, I won't leave you an orphan. I'll come to you. After talking about the Spirit. So do you see what I'm talking about? All right, so that's redemption. Yes, Ronnie. So last week when the world was different, we thought that, or I understood that God created stuff from within him. Uh-huh. In other words, like he said, let there be light because yeah, he yeah. is light. Yeah. Are we now considering that the cosmos was not created from within God or that it was created from within God and then it got messed up? Uh, if probably are- the latter, probably the latter. 
Yeah, probably the latter. Because I don't really know how to wrestle with this yet. This is a little bit bigger than my normal head. Okay. Is, is that, uh, okay, so I asked some questions. Here's one of them. What does the union of the Father and Jesus create room for or make space for? See, that was a good prescient question about what you were asking. I think a simple answer to that, and we're going to talk about when we break out, or when you get together in groups, a simple answer to that is it made room for the cosmos. I, I, in other words, I don't think, I, no, let me put it this way. If God were not, as he has been revealed in Jesus, to be Father, Son, and Spirit, where there are interactions possible, and, and, and movement in those interactions, I don't know how it would have been possible for him to create something that he could embrace and it not be totally other and outside of him. But because there's room between the interaction of the Father and the Son, and that room is called obedience, it's called love, it's called worship, it's called honor. That's why the Scripture can say something bizarre about God becoming man. It can say that he learned obedience that he grew in wisdom and stature and knowledge about God. What Jesus and the Father share as a dynamic life in the Spirit makes room for you and I to be invited into that or to be dragged into it, to be brought into it. So we, we are not destined, nor is the cosmos, to live outside God, outside some kind of monolithic God where he is above, but, you know, and... and, and, and these aren't easy thoughts. I mean, if you go back to, to Aristotle and Socrates and Plato, this is where the idea of God being transcendent and just shining on us came from. Because it was the best you could figure out if you have a God who is a completely unapproachable, independent, non-relational being. But he was never that. I mean, he was never that. He came looking for Adam. He chose Noah and his family. He met with Moses like a man meets with a friend. He called Abraham his friend. He called David a man after his own heart and the apple of his eye. He's relational to the core because he's relational to the core. He's a father, son, and a, probably a she spirit. Oh, he said it. The mother... I think so. Anyway, all right, so there's one of the questions. What does the union? It makes space for you. It makes space for the creation of the cosmos. It makes space for the redemption of things that go awry. Uh, why is eternal life simply inclusion in and participation in the union of the Father and the Son? To me, this is a question that stemmed from our first question. Why is, it both, uh, why is eternal life both knowing you, uh, Father, the only true God, and Jesus whom you sent? Well, it's because eternal life and when you think about it in these terms, what else could eternal life be except the life that was eternal? And where was the life that was eternal seen and expressed before it was expressed anywhere else? It was expressed in God. I think between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the union that is Jehovah Elohim, the Son, the Spirit, that's eternal life. It's very simple. I've got it. Come get it. That's the story of redemption, actually. And then we go, we don't want to. And he goes, okay, I'll come get you. I mean, that's pretty much the gospel right there. 
in simple terms. What is the cosmos? What's wrong with it? And what is it? What is the cosmos destined for? You know. And what else is there beside the cosmos? Okay, so to force the issue, this is taking a while. I'm sorry. To force the issue, I am I am proposing that we think about it. just like Nancy said about this idea of everything being. I'm just asking you to think about it. If in fact we do justice to the word cosmos, the way it's used in the New Testament, and the way it's used particularly in here. The cosmos would represent everything except where it came from, which was the union between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the will of Jehovah Elohim himself. That will flowed through the interaction and created the cosmos, and then interacted with the cosmos with helping Adam name the animals and hunting them down when they were hiding in the bushes, and everything sins. Okay? All right. One quick one. It's getting a little bit late. I know. It's getting late. Um, this is just a thought. If, uh, if we really understood the term Elohim, mm-hmm. it would help us, I think, settle a whole lot of those questions because there are many, many classifications of Elohim. Mm-hmm. And in one, in one case, it means judges, governors, rulers, and magistrates. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, if God gave Adam dominion over all of the earth Which as a governor, ruler, magistrate, mm-hmm. that in his fall, everything that was created fell with him. Okay? So, the whole, the whole universe... And all of the cosmos has been living in what I call a twisted counterfeit. Mm -hmm. But our purpose is to take the twisted counterfeit out of the darkness into the light so that it could become the righteous real, which is what it was created to be be. in the first place. That's its purpose, yeah. But I would like to do a study sometime on the word Elohim Mm -hmm. because everything that was ever created lives in him which means he's outside of the thing that he created. Mm-hmm. And I just love that analogy. And besides that, you're just preaching like a wild man. <laughs> no. So, all right, here's what I'd like to do. And, and I've been totally going to understand it if anybody wants to leave or anybody wants to log off Zoom. It's 826. But if it would be beneficial to split up into a couple of groups or three groups in here and just kick around these thoughts so you have traveling thoughts, you know, it, it helps to voice something. It helps to voice something. And one of the most profound potential transforming thoughts here is, is in one serious thinking, you can deliver yourself from thinking that the, the world is this place and heaven is our destiny and heaven is the end. That is way wrong and it is way too small. And the reason, the reason that I choose to say that the only thing outside the cosmos, by the definition of the word cosmos, is the union of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, that gives me a very precise definition. Now, by saying that, I'm not saying the cosmos is big and that union is small, because the opposite is true. That union is capable of producing and sustaining and containing everything that is or ever will be, and the completely new and improved, transformed 
version of all that is. So it's not, it's not that it's a smaller destination than the confusion of the whole cosmos. It is a more precise destination. It's a destination that everybody is called to, and, we're all, and we can visualize it because God has taken great pains to give us the, 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 the Messiah, Jesus, to see and to know and to, to laugh with and to interact with. And, and he's given us stories of him kneeling and writing in the dust rather than judging and condemning an adulterous woman. He's giving us stories of him uh, revealing something of his union with the Father that was more powerful than the waves of the sea during a storm. It changes the way everything can be sought. That's our destination. That's who we were made for. That's who we were drawn into. That is where we are going. Okay? Okay. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you for responding. Thank you for coming. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for embracing us. Thank you for becoming humanity, particularly on the covenant side of things. Thank you that the covenant is not vulnerable to my covenant-keeping capabilities, but is secure in yours. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that you too are one sent. And thank you, Father, and Jesus, and Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, that you have sent us. And Lord, we've tried to work that out, but our understanding of what we are and what we are involved in and who we are has been criminally small in the past because we've reduced the gospel from the saving of the cosmos to the saving of a few people who are willing to acknowledge how creepy they've acted their whole life. And so, Father, would you rekindle in us a shared vision of your purpose, the reason you sent Jesus, not to judge the cosmos, but to save it, and that that we are a part of that, that you have called us and you have implanted yourself in us, and that, Father, you have loved us and are loving us with the exact same love that is eternal life the love between you and your Son and the Spirit. I know I'm talking way over my head, and I'm asking for stuff that is way bigger than I understand, but it says that if your word abides in us and we abide in you, we can ask what will and you'll give it to us. So that's what I'm asking, Lord, that you would turn our hearts around and we would plug in and understand as much as possible your purpose and redemption. Amen. And if I can read one quick verse to close. Um, remember I mentioned that, that we can wrestle with this all we want, but we actually have to deal with the fact that it's exactly what the Scripture says. Second um, Corinthians 5.20 uh, Oops, sorry. Uh, 5.19 so that God was in the anointed, reconciling the cosmos to himself.
Then he personalizes it. Not accounting their trespasses to them and placing in us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors on the anointed's behalf of such a kind that God makes supplication through us for the sake of the anointed. We implore, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made the one who knew no sin into sin so that in him we might become God's righteousness. Uh, reference is Second Corinthians five nineteen and twenty. Okay, uh, I'm going to just pop back there for a second and say hi to the Zoom people. I really encourage you guys to to say, "Is Larry whacked or what?" or ask a question or something. Thank you.